This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. West Ham halt the Manchester City juggernaut for 45 minutes. And then City turn it on and their seemingly inevitable march to the title continues. The Premier League record for Erling Braut Haaland, 35 goals in 31 games. Seven games to take it out of reach for how long? How nervous is Ron Davis? How nervous is the estate of Dixie Dean? If anyone's going to crash the top four, it's Liverpool. Their fifth win in a row and a not particularly thrilling 1-0 over Fulham with a soft penalty. We'll preview the Premier League weekend, which means we'll focus on Big Sam declaring himself the greatest and criticising the judicial system for good measure. There's some Messi, some Bellingham, some Watford, perhaps some Norway. And in League One, if the referee had actually taken any notice of Burton's time-wasting, they'd still be playing at the Pirelli. I'm not bitter, but it's now out of Cambridge's hands. Ah, bollocks. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendenning, welcome. Hi, Max. Live from Norway, Lars Siverton, hello. Morning, Max. And hello. It's been a while. Simon Burton, welcome back. Hello, Pleasant to be here. Uh, pleasant? Uh, pleasant it is. Uh, let's start at the Etihads. Manchester City 3, West Ham 0. Bob says, is it time for some kind of handicap system like they have in horse racing for football? See how many goals Haaland gets with 40 kilos strapped to each leg. Probably still 20. Um, his goal, Lars, was beautiful. 35th Premier League goal. Breaks the record of Andy Cole and Alan Shearer from the uh, early 90s um, and he only needed 31 games both Cole and Shearer had the record in a 42 game season Ron Davis, who I'd not really heard of before got 37 goals in the top flight in 1966-67 for Southampton but like even those Premier League records Lars have stood for quite a long time yeah Hungo wearing as well in dirt yes you know the record <laughs> is, is, is just completely yeah completely gone and the goal as well it was one of those it's it's becoming just a certainty. I mean, you knew he was going to score not when he received the ball, not even when Grealish played the pass, but actually when the ball was dropping to Grealish. Because then you just see, you see where Haaland is, you see he's in position to make that run. You know he for once has a bit of space in behind to run into, and you know the ball is going to his Grealish. He's probably not going to screw up the pass. So I, I, I knew with a with a great sense of certainty, even before the ball eventually got to Grealish, that here we go, you know, this is the Holland goal. And and it was. He's he's been just becoming inevitable. And um and I think that's actually one of the things that is slightly mind blowing to me about this record is that this goal was a typical sort of Holland chance. You're expecting him to score those pretty much every time. But he hasn't always been getting those because teams tend to sit back against City and not give him the extra space he needs in behind to, to make that run. Uh, but he's found ways anyway in the other games. And he, he is absolutely remarkable. I think he is unique. Uh, I think the combination, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm opening doors that are already open here, but it's the combination of size and speed and intelligence, which is just bizarre because you, you don't really have players who are that big and strong also be that fast and players who then have those, anything resembling those physical gifts, they tend to lean on their physique in their development and they don't always develop the sort of intelligent movement that he has. So he is just absolutely remarkable. And um, yeah, you, the concern is at 22, we are well and truly run out of superlatives. Even this 
feels like something I've said too many times already. What are we going to do about the next 10 years of his career? I mean, this is a real concern. I mean, thesaurus.com is going to have to be used a lot, just in terms of finding words, because we've used up all the obvious ones now. What are the Norwegian superlatives? Last? I mean, given you're there, and I obviously, you know, when Solskjaer was the Man United manager, they, they had the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer table. Presumably the obsession with Haaland is, it, it runs deep in the fjords. It does, but that is one of the sort of more remarkable things about the region of Jaren, where I'm from, is that there is a real culture of not getting carried away. I mean, as someone I spoke to yesterday said, you know, you shouldn't get too excited if things are going well today, because tomorrow things might be bad. It is one of those, you shouldn't get too high when you're successful and too low when you're not successful. And, and Alan Holland, yeah, there'll be some... He can still probably walk around here, and there might be some kids who come up and stuff, but he won't get mobbed or anything. He he could go to the shop here. He's uh, he's still people who've seen him fairly recently around here and, and met him still say he's remarkably down-to-earth when he's here. But But it is... It is bizarre, and I find myself actually wrestling with this a little bit. I worry that I am becoming like those Ronaldo bots on the internet when it comes to uh, Erling Haaland, because it's not just that he is um, I think he is now the best, uh, the best player of all time from my country. I think that's fair enough. I don't think we've produced anyone who's done anything similar to this. But, but he's also like a, a previously quite skinny and gawky kid from my little town, which is a town of like 12,000 people. It's a small place has become one of the best players on the planet. That just doesn't make sense. It's not, it's very hard to process. And I'm now finding myself, you know, when the guard of honor happens, like logically, I think that's one of those things that me being the cynic that I am should feel, Oh, that's a bit cringe. And I should write something a bit spiky about it on Twitter. But I'm just, Oh, look at the boy. He's so happy. Look, it's nice. Look at this. And I'm wondering if all my sort of critical faculties have gone off, blown off in the wind here. And I'm just, uh, a full-on Adling Hall and Stan at this point. Well, I think there probably are critical faculties available to me quite and quite nearby, is my guess. I wonder, Lars said there's an inevitability about that goal, Simon. And I wonder if that inevitability, and I guess the City project, make could make you feel slightly colder about this extraordinary footballer than perhaps you would have, perhaps you should, or perhaps some do. I don't know. Well, I think he's just got, he's got to the final chapter a little early. And, you know, he's, he's reached his peak. It's 22 and he's already at uh, the most successful club in the country, scoring more goals than anyone else. And normally this takes a little bit more time. You know, uh, Andy Cole had languished at Arsenal for a while and he'd gone on loan to Bristol City and he'd had his spell at, uh, at Newcastle. Uh, and it took him a while and he had to kind of, tell a story to get there whereas this alien has landed in our football I mean obviously he's from elsewhere he's had a few seasons on his way he's landed in 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 England and he's already at the end you know where does where where can his journey take him from here Barry where can it and 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 can it in the short term get to Dixie Dean who got 63 in uh, 1927 28 I think so um he Assuming he stays fit, I see no reason why he shouldn't hit the 63 mark. I'm glad you mentioned Ron Davis there, actually, because, you know, football didn't, as impressive as his record is, football didn't begin in 1992. So, uh, to my mind, he, he still has three more to go to actually beat the record. 
and he will almost certainly score those three goals and possibly quite a few more. I don't think there isn't really a trademark Hal and goalie scores headers, acrobatic overhead kicks, one on ones, tap ins, penalties. The, not too many shots from distance, but the odd one. And he's sort of the final piece in this Manchester City puzzle, parachuted into this project that has been carefully designed and put together. And their sort of raison d'etre now is to, to create chances for him. So, And it took a while for early in the season for the City players to get on his wavelength. You remember that he was making runs and he wasn't being picked out and he was getting frustrated, but he is very much on the same wavelength as his teammates now. Uh, he's scored more Premier League goals this season than Chelsea, than Wolves, than Forest, than Everton, than Southampton. I think he scored the same number of goals as Crystal Palace. Does anyone want to have a bet who... Who'll score more goals this season oh, in the Premier League? Well, I don't know. Free scoring, free, free scoring, scoring Palace, Palace or oh. free scoring Haaland. It's I don't know. I'd, I'd go even money maybe. Uh, uh, it's a, a coin toss for me, but um, it's it's a remarkable record. Uh, and I mean, I didn't think Palace or City even played that well last night. They were a bit flat. The fans were a bit flat, and they still won three nil. Uh, it was. As uncomfortable a comfortable victory as you see from from City, I think they, they weren't actually that good. But he got his record; they got the three points, and yeah, I I I don't know where he goes from here. You know, if City win the Champions League and win the treble, or win even the league and Champions League, he he'd be like what what was that Sid Waddell commentary about Eric Bristow? He's like Alexander the Great, he'll have no worlds left to conquer at the age of 22, you know. what? Where does he go? What? What's left to achieve? Uh, maybe he should just retire at the end of the season. <laughs> I, I like the idea that he's the final piece in the jigsaw. When you are missing one piece of a jigsaw, it's normally quite a small bit under the sofa, isn't it? And this is an enormous sort of chasmic giant jigsaw piece. You know, a sofa would just be sort of like, you know, just really like standing there at an awkward angle with Erling Brout Haaland underneath it. You have to have a very big house to fit that yeah. jigsaw in if Erling Haaland is, is any kind of piece in it. Um, you're right. I, I mean, I, I suppose, but it, but I, the, the question that I, I don't know, do, do, are you excited about it, Barry, is the thing? Like, what is it? Why am I not going, this is incredible, I'm witnessing history? I'm more like, oh, another one? Really? This so so soon? I suppose because you're conditioned to expect him to, to score all these goals and break all these records. A lot of people find the experience of watching Manchester City play quite boring. And Manchester City fans get very upset if... People say that they find them boring. I I will admit I found last night's game quite boring. Uh, I often really enjoy watching Manchester City play, but there rarely seems to be any jeopardy. You just can't see them losing games. Now, 
no one will laugh louder than me if Leeds beat them at the weekend. I, mean, <laughs> I think, you know, to, that the world needs Leeds to beat Manchester City this weekend for, for no end of reasons. West Ham, Simon, are 15th. They've lost three in a row. Um, but they do have that little buffer, don't they, ahead of four teams who really aren't great at the moment. Do you, do you worry for West Ham at all or do you think they've done enough? I don't really worry. They've got 34 points. I think probably 36 is going to be enough this season to be uh, to be safe, and they're not far away from that. In the circumstances yesterday, you know, they, they had this mystery illness, perhaps food poisoning, uh, outbreak overnight. They lost three first-team players. They had to rip up the script and try to, uh, uh, you know, all reorganise with a, a, a different team. Uh, they still played quite well in patches. I thought the first 15 minutes of the game, they did really well. Obviously held up till half-time, but the, even after conceding a goal just after half-time, uh, they resettled, had another really strong spell. Uh, inevitably, it was at the end of that that um, Haaland scored City's second. I think Ings had just come on, gave the ball away, and, and they whisked up the other end and, and scored on the break. Overall, though, it was an impressive performance. Yeah, it's a third defeat in a row, but they're away at Manchester City with an illness-affected team. I don't, you know, I d- we don't know how many players were feeling minor effects of, of this illness, food poisoning, whatever it was. Um, overall, I think it was a, a, a really positive evening for them. The cynic in me thought that maybe this mystery illness was a fabrication and that David Moyes was taking this opportunity to rest... Declan Rice, Thomas Suchek and Nea Fagard with a view to getting results in more winnable or drawable games ahead. But again, that that may if if he drop if he'd rested them just and said I have rested them because we're gonna get thumped, there would be an outcry and he would be the subject of you know, angry angry radio phone ins. But if he if there's a, a mystery virus then Fair enough. We have to take his word for it, and there may well have been a mystery virus. I don't know, but I, I ahead of the game before I heard anything about a virus, I fully expected him to rest several key players, with a view to to getting results in in more easy games in the future. The really fun part of that is is David Moyes taking those three into a room and like working on their story you know <laughs> I said this is what you ate this is how you felt these are your symptoms stick with it for at least 10 to 15 years and then on the after dinner circuit you'll be all right and they've got AZ Alkmaar in the uh, conference league those two games if they don't what's interesting is if they don't get anything from Manchester United and then they go to Brentford which aren't straightforward they play both Leeds and Leicester and suddenly that could get really quite spicy if they don't get any points especially if uh, you know especially after Leeds' great victory at the Etihad on Saturday. Um, uh, let's do the Liverpool-Fulham game. Um, not fascinating, Lars, but look, five, no. consecutive win- no, five consecutive wins for Liverpool. Uh, a lot of their wins haven't been that convincing, but if anyone's going to crash the top four, it's them now, isn't it? Yeah. Do we, do we really think that's happening, or is that just one of those things we say because we have to do... I mean, we obviously have to talk about the game and we would like the top four to be interesting. But I really, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to accept that it's about to get crashed just because of the games in hand. Um, I had this on the second screen whilst it was, of course, the Alling Holland show on the main screen. 
And sometimes you have a second screen game on that your eyes are just kind of dragged towards and you find yourself like not paying attention to the main one. That's not what happened here. Uh, it, like you said, it wasn't it wasn't great. I, I feel like most of the times my eyes drifted to the second screen. A surprising number of times Fulham were actually on the charge and, and, and Fulham kind of had managed to create more chances, half chances here than than maybe you would expect. Uh, but, but Liverpool did enough in the end. Trent Alexander-Arnold continues to to pull strings from this sort of his, uh, what I am in kind of want to call the John Stones position, the sort of hybrid midfield. He's been he's been John Stones, and and when you and, and I guess I'm not fully convinced that solves the sort of the, the defensive woes of Trent Alexander-Arnold. You're still defending with him in a four i mean he still might get beat one-on-one but there are a couple of things it does it does bring him in more centrally so you get him on the ball more and he can use that amazing range of passing he has and when liverpool do lose possession he's not quite so far away i mean previously he'd very often like overlapped salah and moved into a very very advanced position when liverpool lose the ball and have to go back and then of course you know he gets he gets exposed a little bit here. He's in a quite deep central role when they lose the ball. It's easier to get back. Maybe that'll help him defensively. I'm not quite sure. But but certainly having him pull the strings in midfield is is a good thing for Liverpool to have. Simon, was that a penalty? Probably, probably. But it, it was close. I was quite quite like uh, Silver in his post-match comments. Uh, he obviously wasn't happy that the penalty had been awarded. Uh, he said it was embarrassing. Then he said, I won't say, I, I, I won't say anything more. And then he said about, uh, three paragraphs of additional stuff <laughs> about how the award of the penalty was impossible to understand and how you know the the VAR should be should be weeping into his cornflakes in embarrassment this morning. Was it a penalty? Yeah, just about. But I mean, obviously, it's not a uh, to to win a match uh, from that kind of penalty. It's okay, but it's not overwhelming. It's not convincing. Uh, there were a couple of uh, Carlos Vinicius forced a couple of good saves out of Allison. It was, you know, it was three points in the bank rather than an overwhelming performance. From yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. Um, speaking of, uh, you mentioned Marco Silva talking about the VAR. Uh, Jurgen Klopp talked about Paul Tierney, and actually, we got a bit of criticism on the pod for perhaps being a bit soft on Klopp on on Monday. And on reflection, I. Don't think we should have been, but um, Klopp said, I probably have to expect the punishment because the referees think I questioned their integrity, which is kind of what he did. I think he did, yes. Uh, but in the moment, I just described my feelings, okay? The whole situation shouldn't have happened at all. It was all it was out of emotion, out of anger. That's why I celebrated the way I celebrated. I couldn't get close to the fourth official, and I didn't want to get close to the fourth official. I also think he did get close to the fourth <laughs> official, didn't he? And then I pulled my muscle. I tried to calm down. It didn't work. Um, I expected the yellow card and Tierney said to me for me it's a red card but because of him the fourth official it's a yellow and he shows me a yellow and smiles in my face that is it he added he's been charged by the FA for his comments he has until the 5th of May to respond to the charge Barry any strong thoughts on that? Well Klopp clearly has a problem with uh, Paul Tierney and it's a beef that goes back to 2020 a game against Aston Villa I think it was when Tierney missed a foul on Jeannie Wijnaldum and Klopp had a go with him and Tierney just went, look, I missed it, I'm sorry, I, I make mistakes occasionally, get over it. So Klopp was angry about that. Then a year later, Andy Robertson was sent off in a game against Spurs by Tierney and in the same game, Jota was denied a penalty 
And and Klopp said to Tierney, I've no problem with referees, I just have a problem with you. And then more recently, last month, there was the the Arsenal game at Anfield when Andy Robertson was elbowed in the face by the linesman and ended up being booked by Paul Tierney for complaining about it as the players went off at half time. So Klopp clearly feels Tierney has some sort of agenda against him personally or Liverpool in general. And he's almost certainly wrong. Um, and, you know, this backpedalling he's done, you know, his behaviour was not good at the weekend and he should be punished uh, quite severely, I think, because it's uh, not a one-off. Uh, he's a regular baiter of a fourth official. Now, obviously, we'll have Liverpool fans what about him to within an inch of their lives pointing out other managers who do this. They should all be punished, but we're talking about Jurgen Klopp in this instance. And, uh, yeah, I do think he should be punished quite severely. Not a fine a suspension or a touchline ban. And I think also touchline bans should mean... Uh, I, I actually think if your manager gets a ban, he shouldn't be allowed in the stadium. Uh, and he should also not be allowed communicate with his bench and he shouldn't be allowed uh, give interviews after the game or before the game how do you in, how do you enforce that do you put them in like a sort of padded cell where where do they where do they where do they go <laughs> they can't be on an earpiece to the assistant manager i mean i don't disagree with you in principle i just enforcing it would be quite fun just put them in a put them in a big box like david blaine and just kind of hang it somewhere <laughs> where everyone can see he's in that but yeah. there he is hang in him the hang him over the center <laughs> circle in a big perspex uh, oh yeah over the game yeah that'd be very good like with you could repurpose the spider cam and just have a big transparent box and then you put them in there with no ways of communicating let it communicate through hand hand gestures everyone can see it now that won't work at all no you're right you're right you need to rethink that no 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 it's a it's a box but it's a sort of that one-way glass so like we can see in but yes yes absolutely see out so he's actually (laughs) trapped in a box that's just all mirrors on the inside So while we can see him, all he can see is his own shame. Klopp has suspended 100 yards in the sky, staring at himself. Anyway, that'll do for part one. Part two, uh, we'll look ahead to the weekend's Premier League football. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Manchester City leads then Big Sam rides into town. We did speak about him at length yesterday, but let's do it again. Um, his press conference was absolutely tremendous um, when he said, uh, lots of people think I'm old and antiquated, which is so far from the truth. There's no one ahead of me in football terms, not Pep, not Klopp, not Arteta. Um, Simon, did you, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Like Barry said in part one, I'm absolutely desperate for for Leeds to beat Manchester City. Um, (laughs) What did you make of his press conference? I think that, he may or may not still be a good manager. Um, he may or may, may not be able to make his, the, these these players play a tune. But the man gives good press conference. I mean, that is top-notch pre- press conferencing. <laughs> that is worth... You know, if strikers get bonuses for scoring goals and defenders get bonuses for keeping clean sheets, press conference givers, should, should they should be getting something for that kind of action, for that kind of 
you know, wit and originality uh, and kind of an absurdity as well. It's in the great British comic tradition. I, 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 it was really spectacular stuff. Ordinarily, I would now be wanting Leeds to lose every game just so, so that he can continue uh, making that case uh, with ever increasing difficulty. However, uh, they are playing Manchester City and for the sake of football, the competition, interest and general fun, uh, I would quite like to see them win and for them to, for Allardyce to, to gloat afterwards uh, about his, how he'd, he's given Pep another footballing lesson, the useless kid. <laughs> Do you think, Barry, I mean, I was thinking about this, uh, um, that if he does have a point, Sam, it, it, like, it would be interesting to see Big Sam manage a club with the, it'll never happen, but the, manage a club with the resources of the people that he's talking about. To, you know, in the sort of control experiment to see how good he could be. Or is that not what, what we want from Sam Allardyce? What we really want is exactly what's happening now. Parachuted in for a month, getting in at the least £500,000 and then just swanning back off into the sunset. Um, well, look, he's not going to get a, a elite club job now. Um, he has had plenty of opportunities in the top flight. He's done quite well. And, you know... It, it is true he is perceived as something as a, of a dinosaur, but when he was at Bolton, he he was, uh, by all accounts, quite ahead of his time in terms of sports science and you know strapping players into vibrating plates uh, to, to shake for half an hour and rattle as part of a post-match warm down or whatever. People who have played from speak. Well, a lot of players, high-profile players who've played under him, speak very highly of him. I know you spent a lot of time with him in the TalkSport studio and you're a big fan of his because he does seem to be a genuinely nice fella. He got the England job, you know, and I I think was uh, unfairly drummed out of it uh, without getting a chance to show what he could do at the highest level, internationally anyway. Uh, I, I don't think he should have been fired. Um, the FA panicked and and were too concerned about optics when, in fact, he didn't do much wrong or say much wrong. But, you know, four games, uh, two of them against City and Newcastle, it's, it's quite a tall order, but um, who knows? Who knows? I, I just, I, I would love if they beat City on Saturday. It would be brilliant. It's the... I think it's the self-pity that I find a little bit grating and confusing, frankly, because, I mean, he's become phenomenally wealthy doing this job as the the firefighter. I mean, most leagues in the world will have one or two managers who are, you know, the guy you look to when it's all a mess and you're about to get relegated, you know. You know, if in emergency, break glass and, you know, in there there's the phone with the number. Uh, but, if, but by being that guy in the Premier League, I mean, I remember when he was at, both at Everton and at West Ham, he turned up in like lists of the best paid managers in the world, like sort of top 50. He, I, if, if memory serves and if reports were accurate, big caveats here. Um, but I think he was on more money than like the PSG and Juventus manager at those two posts. So, so what he does, he does really well, and it has made him unfathomably wealthy. Uh, and in this case, he's being paid a reported half a million to be in charge of a team for four games with an added huge bonus if he can keep them up. 
bearing in mind they're outside of the relegation zone when he takes over. So it's 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 a pretty good gig. So it's 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 a pretty amazing gig, really. So it's weird then to hear him just feel so desperately sorry for himself in the first press conference when he talks about the opportunities he hasn't had. <laughs> you know, the world has been cruel to Big Sam, uh, which I which I think is it's just not the not not how I feel about it. But Increasingly, I'm less and less concerned with what's actually good and more concerned with what's funny. And from that perspective, I'm delighted to have him back. And, you know, styles make fights, as the boxing people say. Styles make fights. And for the Premier League to, to be the most fun, you know, they can't all be hipster-friendly, high-press, you know, advanced possession model deserby dudes. Like, we would, you know, un- set forth the dinosaurs, you know, queue up. The, the Jurassic Park theme tune and and get it launched. We do, we do need a couple of those guys in the league. And there is a big part of me that hopes both Big Sam and Sean Dyche survive and and are still around to to to, to do their thing uh, next uh, next season. I mean, if if at the start of the season we'd had a you know everyone write down your list, so you've got your list of Premier League teams. Everyone write down who you think will be managing those teams going into the final month of the season. We, we, we wouldn't have got near it. It wouldn't have been even remotely close. You know, just, just look at Southampton, bloke you've never heard of. Forrest, Steve Cooper, okay, fair enough. Brighton, bloke you've never heard of. Everton, Sean Dyche, Leicester, <laughs> um, what's his name? Uh, <laughs> Dean Smith. Dean Smith. Fulham still have the same guy. West Ham have the same guy. Man U, uh, Newcastle, Arsenal. Uh, Liverpool, Brentford, Spurs, nah, wouldn't have got that. Palace, Roy Hodgson, no chance. Villa, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's just comical, uh, <laughs> some of the changes. Frank Lampard back at Chelsea? I would not have called that at the beginning of the season. <laughs> no, <laughs> what no. is happening? I mean, actually, this is, uh, it's worth saying here now, I've written a column about this, and it basically starts with that. Just so you know, I, I wrote it. Not quite the same, but yeah, I talked about those outlandish predictions that we made at the start of the season. And if you tried to make the predictions, if you tried to suggest what's your outlandish prediction for the Premier League, oh, Sam Allardyce will be complaining about Sammy Lee not being able to have missed jury service so he can try and save Leeds United. He did judge the judge. He said, I find it poor judgment. And, and, and Sammy Lee had been rendered unemployed. Which <laughs> <He> is- has. <laughs> We got a message from John who said, my wife was on jury service, couldn't understand why everyone else was constantly discussing cricket with a large man. After day three, she came home and asked who, who Mike Gatting was. <laughs> like, it would really affect your, your case if, if Mike Gatting was on the jury. Anyway, I don't know. I suppose, I suppose if there's a serious element to this, and, and I guess you know it more than most, Simon, as a Watford fan, like... like the cost of being relegated is so ridiculously huge, which is why you end up with all these clubs making sort of daft, incredibly expensive gambles, because you have to try and stay there by hook or by crook. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate, this the proliferation of the Watford model these days, of like the three-coach season. Uh, you know things have gone pretty badly wrong, Uh if you're on to coach number three in a single in a single football season, and there's quite a few teams that are now, yeah, I mean, obviously it's desperation, it's poor planning. The more ambition a team has, the more dangerous it is to be relegated because you know the the they'll have spent more on players, they'll spend more on wages. They might have uh, have forgotten to include relegation clauses on every contract. 
so yeah, I mean, it, it is it is seriously dangerous. Not it's the championship is uh, weirdly both terrible in standard compared to the Premier League and quite hard to get out of uh, if you're a recently relegated Premier League team. You you would have thought that that both things could not be true. So yeah, absolutely understand their desperation. Uh, Sam Allardyce, though. No, you're not having it. You're not having it, Simon. I, I'm just. <laughs> uh, I I don't know whether. Uh, I I don't know what is more depressing to appoint another you know foreign coach who you've never heard of until you know t- three hours ago, or someone that you know really really well that you've seen a lot. You've seen their teams. You've seen them play. I mean, Allardyce has been reasonably successful, I suppose, uh, and he has has less needs to to learn about his environment and and uh, the the nation's football. I suppose he is a a cleverer appointment for such a short term task. But as a neutral, I don't know. It's a bit surprising. I guess it's a bit like uh, like what was it called, King Kong versus Godzilla. Uh, that you have the two great beasts of, from different eras uh, coming up against each other. That is kind of Manchester City with with Guardiola and Leeds with with Sam Allardyce. Uh, is yeah the two two great monsters and who can who's going to win this battle of the ages? S- Sam very much the King Kong in this scenario. I'm guessing can sort of imagine him <laughs> hanging from the Empire State Building. <laughs> holding Kevin Nolan in one one mitt. <laughs> Have you spoken about Sam Allardyce's seven-point plan for surviving a Premier League relegation battle? No, please tell us. Because he went on Monday Night Football a couple of years ago and outlined his seven-point plan uh, for how to not get relegated. And there's some pretty good points there. They range from the you know fairly concise to the so vague they're almost meaningless. Um, first point is clean sheets. Keep clean sheets. I mean, that makes sense. It's a shame the other guy didn't think of that, but keep clean sheets is a part of the seven-point plan. Then is don't lose possession in your own half. Makes sense. I mean, kick it far away from your own half, and then that doesn't happen, so that's good. Play the first pass forward, you know, that's related to number two. And then win knockdowns and transitions. Again, this is kind of, yeah, that makes sense. Then it's set pieces, which I guess, yeah, set pieces are good. And then exploit the opposition's weakness. Which again, it's one of those things I, I would hope the other coaches <laughs> thought about as well. And then lastly, this is total nonsense. The last point is just quality in the final third. Yeah. Which is like, I can't, I'm not sure having Gracia saw that how I'm going, I should have, should have thought of having quality in the final third. I tried everything else, but not quality in the final third. But that is the seven point plan. And um, it does outline the Aladician vision for the future of Leeds. Um, let, let's uh, quickly look at some of the other games. I mean, Newcastle Arsenal will be huge once uh, Big Sam's walked away from the Etihad with three points, Barry. And actually fascinating to see which way this game goes. Yeah. So Arsenal have had their wobble, got got things back on track against Chelsea. And this is probably as difficult a fixture as they could have, really, apart from City. Uh, Newcastle away is a seriously daunting proposition Newcastle are are capable of their own little wobbles but they seem you know bang on track to qualify for the Champions League and I'd say Arsenal will if they take three points from this they'll be hard won 
and I wouldn't be a bit. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if if Newcastle beat them. Uh, Simon Chelsea go to Bournemouth, um, uh, who are on good form. Chelsea not. First time they've lost six games in a row since '93. They've lost twenty games across all competitions in a single season for the first time in the Premier League era. Um, they've lost more Premier League games since sacking Thomas Tuchel than they did during his entire time in charge. Uh, Eleven defeats in sixty-three under Tuchel. Twelve in 27 games since. Can you see Frank Lampard getting a point at the Vitality? <sighs> I mean, Bournemouth have been, obviously, the, the story of the last couple of months. They've won, uh, they won five Premier League games in April and Chelsea have only won three since they beat Bournemouth in, in December. Can I see Chelsea getting anything? The thing is that Chelsea are, they're just refusing to submit to the force of logic. And uh, entertaining as that is, there's only so long that can last. Uh, and I guess Bournemouth, in, in their own way, in a, in a more impressive way, are doing the same. So you go into every game. Like I, I was, I heard a thing on Radio Five last week. They get Chris Sutton to predict predict the results of every game this season. And if uh, if he had got every prediction right. Yes, I heard Bournemouth this. would currently have eight points. <laughs> <laughs> and Manchester City would have dropped only three points all season. Which actually is not that surprising. Yeah, like, you kind of would predict yeah. those games that are one-off, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, but it, it illustrates, I suppose, what Bournemouth have achieved. Uh, their recent run of results. I mean, I gen- generally thought as they came into the season that they had just given it up that they were going to bank the Premier League money, come back into the Championship, hope to go again stronger in future. Uh, for them to be 13th at this stage, it is just it is as wildly impressing as any other achievement in this season. Uh, Chelsea, they just can't be this bad. It, it, they can't conceivably, even coached by Frank Lampard, and I think Frank Lampard is, uh, I mean, he's clearly an extraordinarily poor football coach. Uh, even coached by Frank Lampard, this group of players can't be this bad. It's just that it doesn't make it doesn't like you can't possibly justify this this happening. It can only go on for so long. So logically, Bournemouth are in great form. Chelsea are in abysmal form. Chelsea must lose, but also logically, Chelsea have an incredible squad. They must win. <laughs> so uh, yeah, quite a fun game. It is, isn't it? Um, Wolves play Villa at Spurs play Crystal Palace um, need a win if they have hopes of, of actually I don't know where Europa League goes down to now um, you know I think it goes down to seventh but only if United win the cup also does, does Spurs really want that I mean you do wonder if given that there's a bit of a reset this summer new manager coming in Next season without Europe would be really handy, so the new guy actually has a full week to work on the team most weeks. So maybe maybe there's a case to be made that they should just tank the rest of the games to just do their best to get out of those spots. Yeah, interesting. But then you you might end up accidentally getting in the Conference League, which is is that worse than being in the Europa League? I oh, don't. much worse. I mean, because the Europa League does have. I, I I write it off, but I'm actually a bit of a defender of the Europa League. I think it's gotten a lot better. I think you do get some really good matchups in knockout stages. Uh, the money's better. There's a Champions League spot at the end of it. So the Europa League is a really good competition. I don't think the specific situation Spurs are in, I think it'd be good to be out of it. And whereas the Conference League is absolutely not where you want to be. I'm reminded of Harry Redknapp's comments years ago about the 
the end of season scramble to avoid the Europa League. Um, but I agree with you, Lars, actually, uh, not just because I work on it, but I watch much more of it now. Um, you know, and uh, I sort of had that kind of, I'm not going to watch on Thursdays. You know, I'm an old school footballer. Like Thursdays, Thursdays are night. Don't you try and put this on me. Thursdays are night off. It's like a late game on a Sunday or a Saturday. But actually, you're right. It does bring up interesting games with interesting teams. And I should actually clarify, I do like the Europa Conference League as a concept, but whenever I say English teams in it, like, it's not for you guys. Like, that tournament is for... The, the teams from the countries whose football economy can't really support this sort of multi-multi-million pound wages. And, you know, you want to give the Finnish teams and the teams from, and, you know, Estonia and places like that a chance at some kind of European adventure. That's what that tournament is for. So when the Premier League with a team with like 100 million plus wage bill turns up, you're like, guys, this is the whole, the whole point is that they shouldn't have to play people like you guys. Just go away. This is not for yeah. you. Sorry, West Ham. Uh, all right, that'll do for part. That's all right. Uh, that'll do for part two. Part three, um, we'll begin with Jude Bellingham. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, so according to Fabrizio Romano, uh, Real Madrid close to completing a deal to sign Jude Bellingham. Negotiations progressing to the final stages. Personal terms almost agreed. Juni Calafat is crucial again. I don't know who that is, but perhaps... Uh, uh, no, not even Lars does, so we're struggling. Presumably some kind of agent. A new meeting has been shared to a complete agreement with Borussia Dortmund. It seems, Lars, a sensible idea for Real Madrid, doesn't it? And sensible for Jude Bellingham, probably. No, totally. Um, I, I believe uh, Juni Calafat is, uh, is, is a scout-type figure who works for... Uh, for uh, uh, for Real Madrid and is involved in sort of in negotiations and stuff. I say you don't really need a scout to tell you that Jude Bellingham's really good, do you? Like I could I could have done that. Yeah, you know, there's more there's more to do with negotiations, I would imagine. But 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 Jude Bellingham is just he's just unique, isn't he? I mean, he's a guy who's 19 who already it looks like a complete midfielder, can defend, can attack, has a real presence on the field, and 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 I think I wonder if this is a consequence of the sort of general shift towards the sort of 4-2-3-1 formation where you have two deep midfielders and more attacking ones. But we've seen in recent years, certainly, that midfielders tend to be more specialised than before. We have sort of attacking technical guys and we have more destructive guys. The sort of old-fashioned box-to-box midfielder can do quite a bit of everything and do it well. You just don't see that many of them. And and Bellingham looks like that player to me. And midfielder, he can do pretty much everything. And there's no there's no wonder everyone wants him, and that he's a player who just really every single club around would want to sign if they thought they could. And him going to, I mean, I I was worried he would go to City. I say worried. I mean, it would be an interesting thing to see. I guess him and him Foden Grealish feeding Holland for until the end of time is, is kind of. But but yeah, going to Real Madrid. It, I wonder if there's something positive for English football as well in having a guy who. You know, one of the most important teams, players for the national team, probably playing in a different country, in a different league, getting some different impulses. I think that's probably not a bad thing. Uh, Lionel Messi's going to leave PSG uh, this summer at the end of his current contract. He'd reached an agreement in principle to extend his stay for another year. Uh, but now he doesn't want to sign the deal and PSG don't want him to. So those two things put together means he won't be there. He's apparently unconvinced the club can compete at the top of the European game. But he's also... Barry thinking of a three hundred and twenty million pound or euro or dollar deal to join Al Hilal, not the team that Ronaldo plays for, I believe, in Saudi Arabia. Well, 
Cristiano Ronaldo plays for Al Nassar. That's it. And apparently he wants to leave as well. Oh, okay. After only five months with them, he's yeah, he scored a decent number of goals for them, uh, but got knocked out in the semi-finals in the King's Cup and the Saudi Super Cup. So be interesting to see what's next for him. Uh, but going back to Messi. You know, he clearly needs the money. We've seen this uh, over the past few days where he's um, taken unsanctioned time off to top up his income by attending to his duties as a cultural ambassador for Saudi Arabia or whatever it is. I don't know what the future holds for him. There's talk he might go back to Barcelona. That seems unlikely. Talk linking him with Inter-Miami and MLS. Uh, and as you say, uh, Al Halal. So who who knows? But you get the impression Messi has achieved everything he wants to achieve, and is just you know topping up the the pension pot now. Whatever he does, let's talk about Watford, Simon. You recently wrote a, a really interesting piece, I thought, on your decision not to renew your season ticket at Vicarage Road. Tell us why. So I guess the question is. What is a fan? What is a supporter? A, a, like a match-going, season-ticket-holding supporter. What is the relationship between a fan and a club? Is it, it, is it two-way? Is it, are things kind of moving in both directions? Uh, do you believe that you're part of something bigger than yourself? Are you part of a, a, a community uh, or are you not? And essentially, there isn't really a two-way street. You're basically paying your money to watch some guys play football. But fans, I don't know, they need to believe that they're part of something. And it's not hard to make them believe. They're desperate to believe that. A bit of communication between the owners and the fans, the occasional supporters' evening where fans, players, owners, people on the board, where there's some kind of discussion, just occasionally feeling like you're not being ignored and taken for granted, uh, I think is all is required to establish that relationship. But once you feel that it goes, once the scales fall from your eyes, at that point, you're just paying a lot of money to watch some guys play football. And if you're not enjoying it, then there's no point you being there at all. What is going on at, at Watford is that, you know, essentially I'm one of a generation of people who are Watford fans basically because of Graham Taylor's vision uh, to create a community club that that welcomes, you know, particularly children and families, uh, which was the thing I needed at that time. But at the moment, the club is a very long way from that ideal, I think. Uh, not just in the fact that the, the owner ignores the fans, but... There is nothing, there's nothing there for you to kind of hang your hoat on, coat on. There's no hooks. There's no, there's a, a group of players who clearly don't want to be there, who are chosen for sometimes bewildering reasons by an all-controlling owner figure uh, who kind of is very mysterious and aloof. Between them and me, between the club and me, between the owner and me, there's nothing. There's nothing there. There's no relationship at all. Uh, I so why why am I going? Who are they to me? I mean, they're nothing. 
you know, I'm, I'm going because I'm used to going and I like this. I, I have good memories of seeing players wearing yellow shirts running around that same field. But beyond that, at the moment, really not a great deal. What was the reaction to the, the piece? Because there is this idea, you know, there's a sort of constant battle I guess it's on social media a lot about what dif- you know what makes you a proper football fan. And I could, when I was reading, it, I thought this is almost a, quite a brave piece to say like I'm a football writer, but I'm not doing this anymore because the idea is that it's ingrained within us that actually you support your team regardless, you know. And it's it, that argument is used a lot by you know state-funded clubs to say, look, you know, this is bigger than them, you know, you you it is your sort of it's almost your moral duty. To, to carry on going but was the reaction sort of largely positive or or not the, the the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive i've had very little negative reaction i was quite i mean i wouldn't i was concerned about it i'm on twitter and people can swear at me if they like that hasn't happened overwhelmingly many many positive emails many uh watford fans saying they did the same last year or they're doing the same this year the, the club's in a worrying place it's really the what is most annoying about it is it is really not hard to keep this relationship going and they just haven't bothered can i ask simon do, do you have family say kids or parents or anything who are affected by your decision are, are, do you have kids who are watford fans or yeah i go with my son uh uh who has come to really like it uh and you know we enjoy that time together as a father and a son uh, spending you know Saturday afternoons doing a thing that we do, uh, and you know it'll be sad to miss that. But it, it has also been sad for that to become to have become what it's become. You know, it's not just the the results. Obviously, I would have enjoyed watching Watford win the league this year. It's not just the results. It's just a sense of of disconnect. Obviously, the the higher up you go up up the English football pyramid, the more it becomes. Uh, the more clubs are, are oriented around owners and broadcasters rather than supporters. And I, I really, I, I don't understand how many more fans haven't come to this decision, even fans of very successful clubs, title-winning clubs. I think that, that my son understands, supports my decision. I think we've had a lot of pretty miserable afternoons this year uh, and that we will find something better to do with our time. And hopefully we'll start going again in a while. I think it's really interesting. And, and I, look, it's, this is not the only club where fans will feel that disconnect. That is for sure. Uh, Rob says, uh, can we have a League One relegation special, please? Thank you, Rob. Chris says, is your Sunday radio show going to be the best show ever for all the wrong reasons? Uh, yes, Cambridge United lost last night 1-0 to Burton. A deflected, bobbly shot from the edge of the box. Uh, we hit the bar in the second half. We had a header which the keeper saved, even though it looked like it was, it had gone so far in the net, it would have hit the back of the net in Mexico 86. That's what that's what I thought from 10,000 miles away. But we didn't really turn up. And so we need to beat Forest Green on the last day of the season and hope that Morecambe don't beat Exeter, who have lost five in a row, and that MK Dons don't beat Burton. And if Burton don't time waste like they did against us last night, I'll be very upset with them. And what this does mean for you, Barry, is a lot of heavy lifting on Sunday morning. <laughs> and I believe we have a, a bonus hour as well. So. Yeah, which is... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have to come with all my 
All your anecdotes. Uh, my, my, my best stuff. <laughs> Tell us more about Offaly, please. Let's have more hurling. Come on. Anyway, I'm going to change tack and read a, an email out from a, a listener called Hugo, uh, which um, it, it may um, affect you. And if anything that is said in the email does, we'll put lots of, um, we'll put the important phone numbers and websites uh, on the notes page on the website. Um, but Hugo says, hi, Max and Barry. My name's Hugo. I'm a 22-year-old student from Ireland, and I've been an avid listener of the podcast for about two years now. The person who introduced me to The Guardian was actually my dad, a huge Guardian enthusiast who always praised it for its thorough, engaging, but most importantly, unbiased journalism, which he always maintained was rare these days. I was listening to the podcast a couple of weeks ago about a listener who reached out looking for support from the Football Weekly fan base. I've never done anything like this, but I thought I'd give it a go. My dad tragically lost his life to suicide two years ago. So for the second year running, I'm taking part in the Darkness Into Light, which, as I'm sure Barry is aware, is a fundraiser where participants either walk, run, jog, or swim in various locations all over Ireland pre-sunrise at 4am to fundraise for Peter House, P-I-E-T-A House, which is an Irish suicide prevention charity. Raising awareness to prevent suicide is crucial as it's such a preventable tragedy. Suicide affects not only the individual, but also their loved ones, they leave behind. The loss of my dad has crushed his family, friends and colleagues who all thought incredibly highly of him. There isn't a day that goes by where I don't think about what I could have done differently to change things. And I wouldn't wish that feeling on anyone else. By raising awareness, we can help to reduce the stigma associated with mental health issues and encourage people to seek help. I've attached links below to both my link for the fundraiser as well as the link for Peter House. Any support, whether donation or any Irish listeners to get involved as best they can would be amazing. Keep up the great work with the podcast. Thank you, Hugo. Um, uh, yeah, well, of course, uh, uh, I'll read out those links, which is darknessintolight.ie slash fundraisers slash Hugo Daily. Uh, uh, Daily is D-A-L-Y. So darknessintolight.ie slash fundraisers slash Hugo Daily. Um, uh, the website for Peter is P-I-E-T-A dot I-E. Of course, if any of that resonates with you or you feel the need to talk to someone, there are a great many resources available. One of them is the Mind Campaign, who you can call on 0300-123-3393 or visit mind.org.uk. In the UK and Ireland, Samaritans can also be contacted on 116-123, email joe at samaritans.org or joe at samaritans.ie. In the US, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. In Australia, the Crisis Support Service Lifeline is 131114. Other international helplines can be found at befrienders.org. Uh, if you feel the need to talk to someone, please do. We've done podcasts about it and, you know, it's okay not to be okay. And I'm sure Barry, like me, and everyone wishes Hugo all the best. And thank you so much for getting in touch. We really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I wasn't actually familiar with that darkness into light charity activity. So all the very best to anyone taking part. And I I don't think Hugo should beat himself up too much over uh, what happened to his dad. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, so look, good luck to Hugo, and thank you for getting in touch. And look, we appreciate all the emails that we get on subjects like that. And you know we. Can't read them all out, and uh, um, but we do read them all when we get them, um, and we wish you all the best. Uh, but that'll do for today's podcast. Uh, thank you, Simon. Pleasure. Thank you, Lars. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Barry. You're welcome. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove with Arif Islam. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett. We'll be back on Monday.
This is The Guardian.